Beulah Sunday and uh, I send my greetings to the residents of Beulah Home and I look forward to seeing you this afternoon around about four o'clock. My mother is 92 years of age and she lives in a very similar home uh, in Worthing on the south coast of England. And in that home they have a guest room so that when either myself, my brother, other members of the family go to uh, visit my mum, we can stay overnight. And a little while ago I was visiting my mother and uh, got up very early in the morning, wandered out onto the top landing, unshaved, unwashed, unprepared to face the day and met an elderly resident walking down the corridor towards me who took one look at me and said, are you the new resident at number 10? <laughs> so I'm hoping for a better welcome this afternoon. My mother was in hospital. She went in for a routine uh, examination, but whilst she was in hospital, um, she caught one of these hospital bugs and became very, very unwell. Uh, we thought she was going to die. When I went in to visit her after she had recovered, she said I had a visit, she had had a visit from the hospital consultant. And the consultant had said to her, Mrs. Coffey, um, if ever this kind of situation happens again, do you wish us to resuscitate you? And my mother said, what do you think I said? And I said, well, tell me. She said, well, I said, no, thank you. And I said, why did you say that? Well, she said, just imagine. She said, I get to the gates of heaven only to find myself back in Worthing Hospital. <laughs> and she said, I don't think that's a good choice for a Christian. My mother is confident, as every Christian should be, as some of our hymns have expressed, and our final hymn will certainly express, that we are certain of our destination. It's the bit in between that is so uncertain. We're following an uncertain journey to a very clear destination. As Scripture says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Christian confidence. God's task is providing. Our response is persevering. And persevering is what God's word is about this morning. God has begun a good work in so many of your lives. The Bible tells us that when God begins a good work, he goes on to complete it. That's his providing. And our task is to persevere. The great doctrine through the centuries, which has been called the perseverance of the saints. And I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, which is on uh, page 1209-1210 of the Bible. And let me give you an executive summary of where we're going. Here in this passage, the Christian life is likened to a marathon race which every Christian has to run. And as we run this race, rather like the, the track we will see at the Olympics in a few weeks' time, there are people in the grandstand. They're not living people such as surround us now. But they're people who have died. They are people who have run this race of faith. Some of them are named here in Scripture, but we can add to the cloud, as it were, of witnesses, as the Bible calls them, this great gallery of people. The person who first led us to Christ, the person who first told us the stories of Jesus, and the example of their lives are, as it were, a, a giant cheer, just as we cheer people when they're running. 
These people encourage us. They cheer us on from the grandstand. But there are rules for runners, just as there are going to be rules for the Olympic Games. If you're going to run the Christian race, you can't make it up. It's a race that's given to you. And you have to obey those rules. And then the writer goes on to close in verse 3 by talking about the model athlete, Jesus Christ, who's run the race for us. He completed what God gave him to do. And he's not just there as a wonderful example. His power, the power that enabled him to run, is the power that is given us in order that we might run our, our race as well. So the whole summary of the book of Hebrews, let alone chapter 12, 1 to 3, can be summed up as don't quit until the race is over. So let's look at those encouraging supporters. Chapter 12 and verse 1. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And you can write that at the beginning of chapter 12 because in chapter 11 you have, as it were, this gallery of gold medal winners. They're all there in, in chapter 11. It's as if he's crammed into one chapter the 39 chapters and the whole history of Israel through hundreds of years. And he's been selective. Some he's named and some he's just, towards the end of chapter 11, he has to talk about um, people generally, people who quench the fury of the flames and escape the edge of the sword. But it's a gallery, a grandstand of those who've run and have run well. Now when you look at these people, you might say to yourself, well I could never be like Abraham and Moses and Noah and people like that. And whilst the focus on this chapter is on their faith, there are other parts of the Bible which focus on their frailty. Abraham, the man of faith, also told lies. Moses, the man of faith, was also a murderer. And there was a huge middle part of his life. We'll come back to that. A glorious beginning. And then there's the murder, and he becomes a man on the run. And you might say to Moses at this time of his life, does God still have a part for you to play in his story? And there may have been times when Moses, in the backside of the wilderness, might have said, well, no, I had my chance and I blew it. You can focus on the frailty of Moses. You can focus on the frailty of Noah. Noah the great example of a man who suffered ridicule, because people didn't understand that what he was doing was preparing for God's day and he had faith to build that ark when his human senses might have said what's all this about but there was a time in his life when he got drunk and he forgot himself and he was a very frail human being and Rahab every human being starts out their adult life knowing that they have the challenge of how to handle the gift of sexuality and by some standards, you could look at frail Rahab, Rahab and say that she misunderstood God's gift of sexuality. But the focus in the Bible is not on her frailty, not on the fact as what she had done and therefore she had distanced herself from being used by God, it's on her faith. And every one of these characters here, if you go through and scrutinise their story, yes, you can focus on their frailty, but the focus in the Bible is on their faith. And in chapter 11 and verse 1, you can see why they're in this great tradition. They were people who were sure of what they hoped for and certain of what they didn't see. And the foundations of faith are 
given in chapter 11 and verse 6. Every church needs to hear this. Every Christian needs to hear this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's not simply the first day you become a believer. That means every waking moment. It means this day. It's impossible to please God without faith. The job that you find yourself in day by day may not require faith, but the Christian life does. The exams that you have to pass, the qualifications you have to gain, the money that's given to you in order to spend it wisely. You may, in fact, be in the risk business, and that isn't too far away from faith. Christian faith has its own character. But look at what it says in chapter 11, verse 6. Not only is it impossible to please God without faith, but you must believe that he exists, number one. And number two, you must believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This gallery, this grandstand of faith, are people who lived out that principle. Not their frailty, but their faith. And they are cheering us on. They believe that God had a part for them in the story of his saving this world. I, I have a feeling, if I travel around as I do and meet people, I meet people on the door and people when I'm staying with them who actually believe that for some reason that what's happened in their lives, it's disqualified them from serving God. Just as we're not here asking to focus on the frailty of people, but on their faith, for you to focus on frailty, what Eugene Peterson memorably called the unaccountably unlovely middle of our lives. A good beginning and a certain ending. We know where we're going. And I want you to know that the depth of God's mercy is that the whole of life is grounded in his mercy. Even this bit in the middle called the unaccountably unlovely middle. I believe there are Christians here who are not being employed by God because they feel that they're disqualified. They don't even offer. And Sunday by Sunday goes by and the challenges come and somehow you think your big frailty has disqualified you from God's big opportunity. It's a lie. It's a lie of the enemy. There is such a thing as repentance. There is such a thing as putting things right. But there is such a thing as a new beginning. And God offers that to us here this morning. These encouraging runners who have run the race before us. And they're there in the grandstand and they say to us this morning, don't quit till the race is over. But then look at chapter 12 and verse 1 and see some of these rules for runners. Chapter 12 and verse 1, the first rule for runner, we've got these cloud of witnesses known for their faith, not so much their frailty. The first rule is you're to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Did you see the London Marathon um, recently? I had a number of friends running, but when there's so many people running, to spot your friends is impossible, unless, of course, they're dressed as Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck. Or... Do you remember the guy who, who dressed up in a deep-sea diving outfit? And a little later, I think, he came back and walked uh, the, the bed of, of Loch Ness. He was deliberately slowing himself down in the race because for him it was a fun race for charity. So when people, as it were, dress inappropriately, they're doing it for a purpose and we understand. It would be ludicrous for someone to step out onto the 
Olympic Games running track in a few weeks' time and to be dressed in a deep-sea diver's outfit or some comical outfit that is going to slow them down. It's ludicrous because you don't run that way. And nor do you run the Christian life that way. Christian life is not a hobby or a pastime or something that you do in your early teens or you pick it up. It's a lifetime of taking up your cross daily and following Jesus Christ. And when it says you lay aside and throw off everything that hinders, it's really a a whole of life reference. Christian life is not only for today, as you know, it's about the kind of student you are tomorrow, the kind of businesswoman or businessman you are Monday to Friday. There is nothing, the great phrase that comes from the Reformation period, there is nothing in the whole of creation over which Christ cannot say, mine. And that's true of your life and mine as well. So in the sense that we throw off everything that hinders, anything that enables us to run for Jesus Christ, let's go for it. Let's not cling to anything. But then there's this interesting little phrase, and the sin that so easily entangles. What's the sin that trips us up? What's the sin that makes us, as it were, fall flat on our feet as we're running for Jesus Christ? Well, the whole of the book of Hebrews has one sin that is named again and again, supremely in chapter 4. Every church should at least annually meditate on chapter 4. Chapter 4 of Hebrews, the sin that so easily trips us up, is the sin of unbelief. I mean, just imagine, here you are in Charlotte Chapel, those of you who are regular. Imagine about verse 3 of chapter 4. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value, because those who heard it didn't combine it with faith. I always find it quite frightening to have been in Bible-believing churches and called to minister God's word and think of people who... Very often as a young pastor I arrive in a church and people know the word of God better than I do. But it's possible, says Hebrews, to hear the message, to know the message, to even be able to take exams in the message. But if it isn't combined with faith, it's the sin that trips the church up. It's the sin that enables the believer to fall. Now interestingly enough, at this stage, the the writer, as it were, having said the sin that so easily besets us is the sin of unbelief. And it's present in the camp. This is not a word, as it were, for those who will not put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. This is those who are God's people, who know the word of the Gospel, and it's preached to them, and they harden their hearts, or they deafen their ears, or they stiffen their necks, all the imagery that's used in the Old Testament. And they somehow are able to quote Scripture back to God or they they sanctify it with a prayer meeting. And God comes and says, without faith, it's impossible to please me. What he does graciously in chapter 11 is he holds up good examples of faith. If you look at chapter 11 and verse 8, those verses that that we read... Here, if you like, is the the positive aspect of faith. Verse 8 of chapter 11. Faith doesn't always know where it's going. Abraham, when called to go to a place, he didn't know where he was going. Imagine pitching your tent night after night. You're looking for a permanent city whose architect and builder is God, but that city hasn't arrived. 
And so yet again, you're in transition. You're a man and a family on the move. But that's faith. Faith doesn't always know where. In verse 11, faith doesn't always know how. Verse 11 is the the great story of Abraham and Sarah. As old in years as the friends that I'm going to see this afternoon in Beulah home. Comes a time in the human story when bodies are dead, as the Bible says. They're beyond that stage when they can conceive and procreate and give birth to a child. And there's no getting around this story, however amazing it is. God comes to a childless couple, not in their 20s or 30s or 40s, but in their eventide years. And the promise is repeated again and again. And if they looked at the human circumstances, as Abraham gazed at Sarah, and as he gazed at his own body, and he knew the deadness that was there, It was the gift of faith that kept him alive and enabled him to become a father and we are part of Abraham's family. This, you can't count it on the seashore and you can't count the stars in the sky. That's us and millions more. All because a man who has faith as to the how. I mean, like most of you, I, you know, I like to think that I can fix one or two things in my life. Come on, be honest before God. Some of you are paid good money to be fixers, to be administrators, to be organisers. And I can only speak to my own life as an organiser and as a fixer and as an administrator. I know it's possible for me to do all that I do for God and leave no room for the faith element. And God brings very seasoned believers here this morning and puts them under the scrutiny of the microscope and says, is it possible, just possible, that a godly believer of many years and a church with a tradition like Charlotte Chapel, is there any way where the sin that so easily besets us, the sin of unbelief, not the sin of the unbelief of the person who never acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, but people who always insist on where and people who are always insisting on how. And there's a third in verse 13. Faith doesn't always know when. Faith doesn't always know where, faith doesn't always know how, and it doesn't always know when. These people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things they promised. That's why Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced, Jesus said, to see a day such as this. Oh, he didn't see it, but he saw it. He wouldn't have named in detail Mary and Joseph bumping their way down to Bethlehem. He couldn't have seen in detail when Jesus first preached at Nazareth they took him to the promontory and wanted to throw him off. Those are the details of the life. But he rejoiced to see a day when somebody like this Messiah called Jesus would be born. Jesus said that. But Abraham died before it happened. Would you be happy with that? The big prayer things in your life, would you be really happy to say, Lord, I have faith to believe that one day, whether I see it or not, it's going to happen because you said so. like the story that uh, Eugene Peterson tells, author of the the message, the uh, translation of the Bible. 
visiting his, I think his little grandson's name was Andrew. And uh, not yet walking, crawling around. And he's watching how his little lad has a ball and bounces the ball against the wall. And wherever the ball rolls to, the little lad crawls towards it, picks the ball up, bounces against the wall. And wherever the ball rolls to, he crawls to it bounces it against the wall and the ball rolls out of sight under a chair and Eugene Peterson who's just a a pastor turns to his well-educated daughter who's a teacher and says what's wrong? and you know how teachers use big words like wheelbarrow and things like that And she said well he has no object permanence so he says what's no object permanence? so his daughter says well if he can't see it it doesn't exist And Eugene Peterson says, I've got a whole congregation like that. First rule for runners is the faith principle. And you could be as well organized as the people of Israel had to be in transporting that tabernacle all around the wilderness. That could not have been done without organization that those that pleased God were those who were commended for their faith, who didn't always hang out for where and how and when. Check it out. I don't know the thousands of situations that a congregation like this are involved in, but I do believe that the world is looking for more free samples of what it means to walk the life of faith. Basic rules. And there's a second part of verse 2, isn't there? Not only this first rule for runners, which is about the sin that so easily entangles. There's this part that says, let's run with perseverance. When I read chapter 11 and verse 33, I don't know about you, but I go weak at the knees. People who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, quenched the fury of the flame, shut the mouths of lions, became powerful in battle, women receiving back their dead, and so it goes on. I I want to encourage you in this way. I've got a little motto that my mum gave me when I first began in ministry. And it sits in front of my desk and it says this, if you faint in the day of adversity, your faith is small, And there is something about the Christian life which is not waiting for God's hurricane to blow in so that all evil is swept away. Or some miraculous vaccine can be discovered that will somehow sort of cure you and the church of all its ills. There's no big bang theory with regard to the Christian life. It's about persevering. It's about keep on keeping on week ago we had our annual gathering and we received about 70 new ministers welcomed them in and commissioned them and on that Friday evening there was only one wearing a kilt but you'll be proud that there was one his name was uh, Gordon Graham, Graham Dodds Graham's testimony as a Scotsman is that he he had done time in prison for burglary and burgling homes and taking people's property and among the homes that he burgled was the home of two Christians 
And they persevered in the Christian life and they knew what it says in Ephesians about putting away anger and being tender-hearted, forgiving one another. I mean, we all know that. We say it. But here they were confronted with somebody who had violated their home. And the more they prayed about it and how God wanted them to be kind and tender-hearted, they felt they had to somehow make contact with this burglar. So they made contact with him. They visited him in prison. And when he came out of prison, they offered him their home. And he became a Christian. And in a course of time, when Gordon felt the Lord was calling him to ministry, they paid for him to be trained for Christian ministry. Now, I don't call that a firework display. I call that just keep on keeping on, persevering. Eula's 48 years old, am I right, Ian? I would imagine that all that Margaret has shared and all those who share in the work of Eula, a lot of that is just about doing ordinary things in the Christian life and doing them well persevering I want to confirm you this morning in the most mundane task that you're called to do and sometimes you wonder whether you can actually call it a calling and I want you to know you can if God has placed you there and you're a lover of Jesus and you're following him faithfully that's your calling and sometimes I know this in my life and you do when you've got nothing else to hold on to you hang on to your calling tough times don't last but tough saints keep going on. Keep on keeping on. John Claypole, well known for his Bible teaching in the United States, knew a lot about God's Word, but like all of us who know God's Word, there comes a moment in your life when you're faced with a situation when you're speechless. And when he sat beside the bed of his ten-year-old daughter who had leukemia, he didn't have any clever answers. There were no mysteries at that moment that he could unravel by going to a part of scripture. And somebody passed in front of him at that moment of his life, that great passage from Isaiah 40, that those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength to run. They will rise up with wings like eagles, they will run and not be weary, they will walk and not faint. And somebody gave him not only that passage, but a passage that somebody had discovered from the writings of Martin Luther King who in the dark days of the civil rights movement when homes were being firebombed and Sunday school children as young as those who went out this morning were being slaughtered in Birmingham, Alabama they used to encourage one another with these words if God gives you the strength to fly with wings like an eagle then fly if God gives you the strength to run then run. If God only gives you the strength to walk, then by all means walk. If he only gives you the strength to crawl for him, then by all means crawl. But by all means, keep moving. Run with perseverance. And the third rule, the first rule, is you throw off that sin which entangles, the sin of unbelief. You run with perseverance. And then you run the race that is marked out for us. Now I think as you do, that this means that there is a, a general race that we all run. 
That's why we're here today to encourage one another in the race that God has called us to run. But within that, there is a specific race. I like to read this in this way. The race marked out for you and you and you. When we watch the Olympic Games in a few weeks' time, you'll know, especially the 100 metres, they'll line up. And if the uh, commentator's doing his job right, he'll come down and say, in lane number one, in lane number two, and the camera will focus on the, on the person who's running in that lane all the way down. Now, you know it's ludicrous. But for the runner in lane number one to look across to lane number eight and think, I think there's more sunshine in that lane. I think I'll wander across there and two of us can run in that lane. It's a ludicrous illustration because there is a race lane marked out for you. Do you realize that there is a race following Jesus that nobody else can run at this moment of time except you? Sometimes that keeps me on track. Sometimes when I say to the Lord, I want out, he has to come and whisper in my ear that this is the lane I've marked out for you. I mean, you probably north of the border don't know, know the difference between Torquay and Didcot down south, but in human terms, let me tell you where I would rather be living. I'd rather be living in Torquay. I'd rather get up on a Sunday morning and not have to travel hundreds of miles to do what God has called me to do. I've told the Lord that, but he says, this is the lane I've marked out for you, and you must run that race. I wish I didn't have to travel so much. I've got four wonderful grandchildren, and I wish I could be with them today. But I'm not, listen, I'm not wearing my heart on my sleeve so you can come out and say, poor man. I'm wanting to say to you, I feel called to run the race that has been marked out for me. Do you? Not cribbing against all the things that cramp and restrict and make life painful. It's do you believe as a rule for runner, if this is the race marked out for me, then give me grace and perseverance to run that lane. And here's the third thing. The third thing is that Jesus, the model athlete, who appears in verse 2, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Friends of mine went to see their little lad run in the school sports uh, last summer, and there they were on the side with their cameras and grandparents and aunts and uncles. And this little six-year-old was pounding up the track in the lead. And then out of his corner of his eye, he saw his mum and dad and his grandma, and he stopped. And he waved, and all the runners ran by, and he came in last. I had to take him aside and say, listen, when you're running, keep your eyes fixed on the tape. You've seen, haven't you, the wonderful way in slow motion they can show you now the 100 meters runners, 200 meters runners. Their, their head barely moves. Then for Christy, who was a particular hero of mine, the eyes, whatever noise was going on, he just blanked it out. His eyes were so fixed. It's that same meaning here. Fixed! Your eyes on Jesus. And what a wonderful thing to fix our eyes on. Fix your eyes on him who was the eternal word before he became the son of man. Those of you who are paid and are employed and get so much fulfillment from unraveling mysteries and complexities and how does this mighty universe work? The eternal word, your saviour Jesus, was there in the loving Holy Trinity before time began planning in love, understanding these complexities. We will continue to see through a glass darkly, but what a wonderful thing to come to him who is the eternal word. In the beginning was the word. 
And in the beginning was this word that became the child in straw, the eternal word, and yet a child in speech, in straw without speech. Some of you may have been to see the, uh, the film The Passions of the Christ. That section where they, they show in a flashback Jesus the carpenter, it's, it's more Catholic than I would wish because it's just Mary and Jesus with no Joseph, with no children and I think scripture tells us that Jesus enjoyed a healthy family life that when he was a young boy of 9 or 10 Mary would go to the back door and would cry out by his Christian name by the name that we call Christian by his given name, Jesus and Hebrews reminds us that this Jesus has lived a human life among us come to him, fix your eyes on him He knows family life. He knows what it is to have brothers and sisters who don't understand. He knows what it is to work in a carpenter's shop. He knows what it is to have people who pay on time and those who don't. Grumbling customers. Worship that Jesus. Talk to that Jesus. Pray to him. That's what makes him a sympathetic high priest. Fix your eyes on the Jesus who was the one who who ran this race and was able to say, I have accomplished all you gave me to do. Fix your eyes on this faithful Saviour who endured the cross, despised the shame, and said, it's finished. Fix your eyes on the one who is seated, as it says in this verse, at the right hand of God, the Father on high. He's opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers by his faithful endurance, and he rules and he reigns for those who wait and watch and work for his coming. We're in this period between Good Friday and Pentecost. As Baptist Christians, as evangelical Christians, we we don't make too much of the the church year in the way that others do, but we have so much to learn from this rhythm of the church year. Good Friday, Easter Day, the 40 days, Ascension and Pentecost. And these are not just historic events way back there. We should embed our life deeply in these events so we come to our Good Friday and hear Jesus saying, pick up your cross, don't just follow me then take up your cross. Take up that cross that you haven't taken up, the cross of living by faith. And bury in his tomb the question where and how and when. And prove yourself to be a man or woman of faith. And let Easter Day be born again. Easter Day which is just riven with possibilities of new life and new beginnings. And let there be a 40-day cycle. Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, began to explain the scriptures. Instead of telling God all that we know, why don't we sit down with Jesus and take space to allow him to tell us all that we've already been told and the true meaning that can emerge. And then ascension. If ever there was a word for some Christians here this morning, it's the word of Jesus to Mary in the garden, don't cling to me. Ascension is about letting go. Ascension is about letting go of what we know and what we can see and what is familiar and trusted and loved and true and tender But let go, don't cling. Because if you let me go in ascension, then in Pentecostal splendour, more, more than you could ever imagine or ask or request or think will come your way. Pentecost isn't just general Pentecost. We're all Pentecostal Christians in the sense that on the day of Pentecost, the church was instituted by the Holy Spirit as it had been constituted by Christ. But do you believe in a personal Pentecost the personal baptism of the Spirit for a particular task in a particular place at a particular time. If you don't, you're a binitarian. 
and it's better biblically to be a Trinitarian. I believe in God the Holy Spirit. I believe that you can equip me to run, even as you equip Jesus to run. One of my favourite authors of the 20-21st century is Charles Colson. And in all that focus that's been on the White House in these days, I can never see, as it were, the Oval Office without thinking of the years that Charles Colson spent serving President Nixon. I had the privilege of hearing Colson speak a couple of years ago. He spoke about how he had gone to a prison. As you know, he is the founder of Prison Ministries International, caring for thousands of prisoners in uh, dozens of jails around the world. He'd gone to Denver, Colorado for an Easter morning service. In the open air, 600 men behind a huge security wire. Behind that wire, a platform on which those like Colton who were taking part in the Easter day services stood. Guards in the towers, armed guards on the ground. He'd asked a friend of his to come up and say the benediction. The person comes up to say the benediction, but instead of saying the benediction, to Colson's horror, says to these 600 men, prisoners, I challenge those of you who are true followers of Jesus Christ to step out from where you're standing and come and stand in the dirt here in front of the wire. Colson said it was a, an icy moment in his life. He saw the guards, as it were, tighten on the guns and, and a general sense of uneasiness and he was saying to himself just get on with the benediction and the friend repeated the request if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ I challenge you to come and stand down here by the wire after what seemed an eternity about 60 men shuffled down the line came and stood peering up through the security wire when they would got there the man at the front said turn around they turned around he said, now kneel in the dust. They knelt. He said, now reach out your arms around each other. And they did that. He then said, now pray for this prison. And they did. Olson said, when he looked back on that Easter day, what he saw in that prison, he saw the qualities that had accompanied the church through 2,000 years of history. He said, I saw courage. He said, I saw humility. I saw unity and I saw prayer and I give those to you this morning qualities of courage humility, unity and prayer and I, I ask you to hear the great cry that comes from scripture it comes from those who once walked here but no longer, they're with the communion of the saints in glory and their loud cry to all of us this morning is this don't quit till the race is over Lord, we ask your blessing upon us. We pray that you will give us that spirit of perseverance. We pray especially for those who may be enduring a tough time beyond that which we can begin to understand as we wait upon the Lord. May we renew our strength and may we run for you even as you ran for us. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.